Daniel chapter 11 is a unique chapter in all the Bible. In fact, it has over a hundred different prophecies about what was coming future to Daniel's time and will lead us into an incredible prophecy about the coming Antichrist. More about that today on Walk in Truth. You're listening to the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now, here's Pastor Michael. Prophecy prepares the people of God. Jesus said, you know how to read the signs of the sky, but you don't know the signs of the times. You haven't read the writing that's on the wall. Predictive prophecy, Jesus said to the apostles in Matthew 24, behold, I've told you in advance. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then get out of the house, loose translation, Flee to the mountains. Don't go back and get your jacket because the days of vengeance are here. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Luke 21, Jesus says, look, I've told you in advance. So the aspect of prophecy that I'd like to highlight tonight is it proves that God is God, no doubt, because God challenges the false gods. Tell us what's gonna happen in the future if you're a true God. We know that they're false, the idols are nothing. But there is something else, and maybe it's not something we think about. Prophecy is supposed to prepare you for the times in which you live. And if the people of Israel studied Daniel 11, who would live after Daniel's time, they would know exactly what was going to be happening all the way to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. How would they know? Because there's 135 fulfilled prophecies in 35 verses. So if you began to study your Bible at this time, outside of the scrolls of Jeremiah, which Daniel did have, you would be able to see what was going on. And simply what was going on is what's always been going on, the conflict of the ages with Israel right at the center. So here is verse one. <laughs> with all of that being preamble. And there was much more I could have said but I don't want the snail to show up at my door. <laughs> in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. At the end of uh, chapter 10, the angel says to Daniel, do you understand, verse 20, why I came to you? But I shall now return and fight against the prince of Persia. We talked about that being a demonic power around the return of the captives to Israel released by the Persian king. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the, in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except, would you notice, Michael, your prince. Now we know that's Michael the archangel. Michael's called your prince or the prince of Israel. You have a prince of Greece at the end of verse 20, a prince of Persia in the middle of verse 20, and Michael, your prince, which some have identified as the restrainer, as we'll get into a little bit more of this as we study. But Michael, the archangel, has a special relationship with Israel. He is called Israel's prince, Michael, your prince. He will be mentioned in Daniel chapter 12 in verse 1. Take a peek. 
Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, Daniel 12, 1, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. I'll describe that to you when we get there, what that means. But notice Michael is mentioned again in relation to Israel as a great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Why was there spiritual warfare around Israel at this time? And why has there been spiritual warfare throughout history? We've talked about how the Messiah was coming from Israel. That's obviously a very important reason. But we talked about we're at the end of the 70-year captivity and some of the people of Israel are returning back to the land to attempt to what? To rebuild the city and the temple. And so the Persian leader or the king would be responsible for releasing the captives back. And remember, as they went back, there was a week showing only about 50,000 Jews returned to the land. If you're with us for that study, and they, uh, the peoples of the land were subverting their work and uh, going against them and so forth. They needed strength and encouragement. And so when verse 1 says, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him, it would seem that this angel is working in tandem with Michael around Darius the Mede. Uh, many believe that that Cyrus, the Persian right there, could be interchangeable titles there. But I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now that's the first year of Darius the Mede. If you go back to uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that, many believe that's the same person, just different titles given to him. A message was revealed to Daniel, and we talked about how this was all around the return of the captives to, uh, back to the Holy Land. And so that's what's going on. That's the, the, um, the spiritual warfare around those. I had to go help Michael is the idea. Two years before the degree was, decree was given for the people to return to the land, Michael was involved in this. And Darius I did lift the restrictions that had been placed on the rebuilding of the temple. He told them to proceed, and so that's what we have going on. I'm going to give you a time note as we move into verse 2. Chapter 11, Daniel, verse 2. We have an overview of history leading to the first crisis. Now, don't be afraid. Time-wise, we won't go into all the details. We're going to kind of fly over this a little bit, but I'm going to give you a few examples here. But here, in verses 2 through 20, we have a period of 355 years. You can safely jot this down. Moving from 530 B.C. to 175 B.C. Verses 2 through 20 cover 530 B.C. to 175 B.C. or from Cyrus to Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? That's what we're dealing with. Verses 2 through 20. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. First, we're going to look at some Persian kings. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, I tell you the truth. This is prophecy. Three more kings are, noted in your Bible, going to arise in Persia. There are yet future to this moment that Daniel is living. And so they are future kings. This is part of the prophecy that's going on. And as soon as uh, he becomes, the fourth becomes strong through his riches, 
he aroused the whole empire against the realm of Greece. So you can see the, the prophecies begin in rapid fire. Now, who are these three more kings? Well, secular history tells us who they were. Cam, Cam, Cambyses was the son of Cyrus. Uh, he was the first. Then there was a second named Pseudo-Smerdis. He reigned in 522 B.C. He was a phony, but he looked like his brother, so some believe that he was the genuine article. And then there was Darius Hystaspes. If, you, uh, if any of you have the uh, MacArthur Study Bible and you want to work through the details of this, he's done a good job laying out the history. Those were the three kings moving from this time to 486 B.C. But the fourth king is the focus of verse 2. Then there will be a fourth who will gain far more riches than all of them. And the fourth king is Ahasuerus, or he's known as Xerxes. Now, if you put your thinking cap on for a second, you might remember that Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, is the king at the time of the book of Esther. And he has incredible riches. In fact, the book of Esther opens up with him giving a world's fair that I think lasted some six months. And what Persian kings would do is they would invite uh, people around, the bigwigs and so forth. And in this case, they would do something to show off their wealth and their power. Well, the book of Esther opens this way, and the king of that time is a king named Xerxes. He has a six-month world's fair to display, display his incredible wealth. He is the fourth king mentioned in this verse in Daniel. And so he, remember, deposed Queen Vashti, if you are a VeggieTale fan, because she wouldn't make him a sandwich. Um, that's not actually what happened as far as we know. But she would not display her beauty in front of his buddies. And some believe that he wanted her to be lewd in front of them in some respect. She refused. Queen Vashti refused. She was deposed. And there was a search for a new queen. And the queen that arose in that time was a woman named Esther. And Esther became a savior figure, if you will, of her people, because at that time, a plot was hatched by a man named Haman. Or you may know him if you lived in the 70s as, hey, man. <laughs> but anyway, so, <laughs> so Haman hatched this plot, and he got the king to sign a decree to eliminate the people of Israel, right? And he uh, was mad at Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, and he wanted to hang him on the gallows. But the gallows that he made to hang uh, Mordecai became his own death instrument, and he was hung on the gallows. But his plot was to destroy the people of Israel, and Esther had to make a decision. And Uncle Mordecai said, if you don't stand, God will bring deliverance for the Jews in some other way or through somebody else but perhaps you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther stood tall. And she called for a, a three-day period, I believe, of prayer and fasting. Don't eat anything. Pray for me that the king will raise the scepter and allow me to approach him and to reveal the plot. And that is the feast that the Jews now celebrate called the Feast of Purim. They celebrate Esther's stand and another deliverance of their nation. Well, 
Ahasuerus or Xerxes I, king of Persia, reigned from 485 BC to 464. And when Haman plotted to destroy Mordecai, his family... You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. But first... Is it proper for Christians to celebrate Christmas? The Christmas season can appear to be a conflict of messages, images, and sentiments. The Origins of Christmas DVD will address frequently asked questions such as, do we know Jesus' actual birth date? Did the early church celebrate the birthday of Jesus? Did Christians really steal Christmas from a pagan holiday? The Origins of Christmas DVD wraps up with a practical answer to one final question. Is it proper for Christians today to celebrate Christmas? And if so, how? Get your copy of the Origins of Christmas DVD today when you visit walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance right here on Walk in Truth. A three-day period, I believe, of prayer and fasting. Don't eat anything. Pray for me that the king will raise the scepter and allow me to approach him and to reveal the plot. And that is the feast that the Jews now celebrate called the Feast of Purim. They celebrate Esther's stand and another deliverance of their nation. Well, Ahasuerus or Xerxes I, king of Persia, reigned from 485 BC to 464. And when Haman plotted to destroy Mordecai, his family, and all the Jews in the Persian Empire, God used Esther. As soon as he became strong through his riches, he would arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. After three years of battle, Xerxes, this king in the book of Esther, was defeated by the Greeks in the crucial battle of Salamis in 480 BC. Xerxes reigned until he was assassinated by the chief of the palace guards in 465. Uh, his second son, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, ruled in his place. If Xerxes was Artaxerxes' father, who was his mother? It may well be that it was Esther. We know that she had some influence in the court when Nehemiah asked to go and return and rebuild the, uh, the city walls in the book of Nehemiah. You can see that in chapter 2, chapter 1, chapter 2. But here's what happens, just to give you the quick overview. Persia dominated the world from this time for about the next 150 years. There were other kings during this time, but they're not mentioned here. There were other invasions and attempts at defeating the Greeks but it's stuck in the Greek mind. And even though Persia dominated the world, according to Daniel 2 in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 7, we see the leopard and the shaggy goat in uh, chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel representing Greece. We do have another uh, reference to the, the, to the Greeks, and here's what, where it is. Then a mighty king, verse 3, will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Now, the mighty king of Daniel 11.3 is the first king of Daniel 8.21. I think all scholars agree that this is Alexander the Great. And in the Greek mind, they were angry with the Persians because the Persians kept trying to attack them and to war with them. And so Alexander the Great became the tool for the Greeks to get vengeance on the Persians. And so here's what happened. Alexander the Great took over. He launched an attack against Persia in 334 BC. By 332, he had essentially subdued the Persian Empire. And so this man 
was born Alexander in 356 BC. He ascended the Macedonian throne in 336, advised by his teacher Aristotle that he could rule the world if he could make people adopt the Greek culture. Alexander extended his empire east from Greece around the Mediterranean Sea to Egypt, then to the borders of India. He died in Babylon in 323 BC at the age of 33 with a very tired army in a drinking binge where he did something like this. <laughs> There's no more kingdoms to conquer. <laughs> what am I gonna do now? I'm 33. I guess I gotta retire or something. It wouldn't be bad to retire at 33, would it? But Alexander was a, a military genius, a fighting machine. He had gotten retribution for the Grecian Empire, but he was uh, a bit of a mess in other ways. There are people who claim that the book of Daniel had to be written later, but interestingly enough, Flavius Josephus records an incident during the time of Alexander the Great which the, supports the early authorship of Daniel. When Alexander's invasion rate, reached the Near East, Jedua, the high priest, went out to meet Alexander and showed him a copy of the book of Daniel. This is recorded by Josephus, a historian from the uh, first century, in which Alexander was clearly mentioned. High priest shows Alexander the, the book. Alexander was so impressed by this that instead of destroying Jerusalem, he entered the city peaceably and worshiped in the temple, close quote. That means that if Alexander saw his name in the book of Daniel in the 300s, then the book of Daniel couldn't have been written in 150, and it has to be authentic, and these prophecies are true, and we know they are even without this historic incident, but it did occur. But as soon as he has arisen, Alexander, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled toward the four points of the compass, though not his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he, he wielded. For his sovereignty or his kingdom will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Now keep in mind, these events are removed some 200 years from Daniel's life. He is getting information about people who haven't lived yet. That's prophecy. God knows history in advance. And that's why liberal scholars say there's no way he could know this stuff. How could he write these details? How could he know that Alexander would die and not one of his heirs would take the throne because Alexander died at a young age. His family was left unprotected. I could give you a bunch of details, but all of his descendants were killed and not one of them was able to take the throne. And so it was parceled out to his four generals in the four different compass points. This is what, exactly what occurred in secular history was prophesied by the Bible before it ever occurred. What you're holding in your hand, if you're holding a physical Bible tonight, is the word of God. And Daniel 11 is an amazing chapter. And I can't do it all the justice uh, for if I gave you all the details, we'd be here for weeks, but Here's, here's what it basically says, that this would be split up. It would par be parceled out to his generals, and here's what happened. It went to Antipater, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Um, for our purposes, we focus on the Ptolemaic Empire, which was Egypt, North Africa, and Arabia, 
and the Seleucus Empire, which was Syria and Babylonia. But for our purposes, just think of Israel in the center, Syria to the north, just as it is today, and Egypt to the south. Remember, when you're studying your Bible, Israel is always at the center of all geography. So when it says the king of the north or the king of the south, it's moving from the point of Israel to the rest of the world. Just like we would consider maybe America the center and we would say Canada's to our north and Mexico's to our south because from our vantage point, we live here. So we could say America's at the center for us. Well, in the Bible, Israel's at the center. So the king of the north and the king of the south are always from the vantage point of Israel. And this is, of course, what God would consider as well. And so some of the kingdoms were strong and some were weak, but the two strongest were the north and the south. The king of the south will grow strong, verse 5, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him, obtain dominion. His dominion will be great, a great dominion indeed. South is Egypt, or what's called the Ptolemaic Empire. Ptolemaic starts with a P, and the Ptolemies would be P-T-O-L-O-M-I-E-S, the Ptolemies. And then the Seleucid dynasty is to the north. So if you think of the S, Seleucid is Syria. You got north and south from Israel. That's basically what's going on, looking from the land of Israel. So one of the Ptolemies' generals in 316 B.C. was Seleucus. He became even stronger than Ptolemy Lagos and returned to Babylon to establish his own kingdom, which became the kingdom of the north or Syria. South and north from Israel being in the middle. Here's Ezekiel 5.5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, Ezekiel 5.5, I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. To God, Israel is the center. And by the way, to God, Israel always will be the center. Israel is the apple of his eye. And even though right now Israel is largely secular and atheistic or agnostic, their eyes are going to be opened again and God is going to work again in the land. Look at verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement or make an agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor, and I'm going to give you one example of how these prophecies work, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those brought her, who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. And everybody said, say what? <laughs> Sometimes when these areas were warring, they would try to make an alliance by the king giving her, his daughter to the other king. Kind of a, uh, an offer of peace. Let's sit down at the table. Maybe we can get along kind of thing. But here's what you have to see from the standpoint of Israel. When the north and south were warring with each other, who was always in the middle? <laughs> Israel. And when someone lost, let's say that the Syrian king came down to battle Egypt, and let's say that uh, he lost, and uh, let's say that he was walking away and he got beat up, he would have to pass through a place called Jerusalem. And since Israel was not really a warring nation, and oftentimes they were relatively weak in the sense of their armies and so forth, 
the king would come through there and he would take his aggression out on Israel. And Israel always found herself between a rock and a hard place. And sometimes she would try to figure out who to ally herself with. So sometimes she would make an alliance with Egypt. Sometimes she would make an alliance with Syria or Assyria to try to find a way to survive. She became the proverbial punching bag in the Middle East, but not because she was really doing anything wrong, more because of her geographic location being unfortunate. Hey, listening family, I'm very grateful that you're listening to Walk in Truth. It's been a great year. I'm so glad you're able to listen to this teaching in Daniel chapter 11 called Know God and Take Action. I want to let you know that your financial support is greatly appreciated. You are partnering with us in the greatest work of all. When you give to Walk in Truth, you're essentially helping us pay for everything that goes into getting this program on the radio. None of us gets a paycheck from doing what we do, but we are grateful that we can get the Word of God on the air. We would love to enter this new year with the ability to grow this ministry so we can reach more towns and more people like you with a powerful teaching of the Word of God. Please visit walkintruth.com today and click on the donate button on the top right-hand corner. You can either give a one-time tax-deductible donation or I would love it if you believe in our mission, if you believe in what we do, if you would become a monthly partner. Visit walkintruth.com. Thank you so much. God bless you. Well, there's more of the teaching in Daniel chapter 11 coming, so we'll see you tomorrow on this station. Thanks so much for listening to Walk in Truth and for your support. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people. 